Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. This episode is brought to you by AMC+. With a name like AMC+, you'd expect the plus to mean more, right? Actually, it means better. AMC Plus is a premium streaming bundle for content from AMC Network brands, including Shudder, Sundance Now, IFC, BBC America, Sundance TV, and IFC Films Unlimited. That means you can spend more quality time with content you love. You know, only the good stuff. We'll be back later in the episode to tell you about some of the amazing series you can binge on AMC Plus when they're giving you only the good stuff. So today we are going to go into the life of one of my all-time favorites, and that is actress and singer Judy Garland, who is pretty much objectively one of Hollywood's most iconic stars. She also starred in a great Christmas movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, that features one of my all-time favorite Christmas songs, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, the prettiest and saddest Christmas song ever. My main source for this was Get Happy, The Life of Judy Garland by Gerald Clark. This will be a two-parter because there is a lot of information, so let's get started. Frank Gum and Ethel Milne met in 1911 while they were both working at the Orpheum Theater in Wisconsin. They had both grown up with dreams of performing on stage and hit it off almost instantly, but Frank seemed to have cold feet about their relationship and went back and forth on it a lot. In fact, Frank actually left town completely during one of their breakups, just one of the 28 states he had moved to in a few short years. It was not just because Frank was a lover of travel, however. Frank was hiding a dark secret. He was gay. He would often skip town after making advances on young men and teen boys and being found out and accused of being a pervert. Word had even got to Ethel's hometown of Cloquette, Wisconsin, and no one knows if she had known about the rumors, but regardless, he eventually returns at some point and the pair get married in January of 1914. Now, both were incredibly musically talented. Ethel came from a musical family and Frank was a natural performer with star charisma. He was very well liked by everyone, and people just loved to be around him. Ethel, not so much. Shortly after getting hitched, the pair moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they hired they were hired to run a theater. But they didn't plan on staying in Grand Rapids long. They had come up with an act called Jack and Virginia Lee Sweet Southern Singers, ditching the gum name, well, because it's not that great of a name. <laughs> In December of 2014, I'm sorry, December of 1914, the theater that they worked for let the pair take off to try and make it in vaudeville. But by March, they were back in Grand Rapids because Ethel had come down with the flu. That flu was a baby. By September of 2014, they rented a home and seemingly settled down. That same month, their daughter, Mary Jane, was born. 
So they continued running the theater and performing their act locally, but had all but given up their dreams of vaudeville. They were now half owners of the new Grand Theater and had a second daughter, Virginia, in 1917. It wasn't long before their girls were performing on the stage of the new Grand Theater. When Ethel became pregnant in 1921, she was not happy about it and tried to induce a miscarriage by drinking castor oil and then going on car rides on really bumpy roads. They eventually approached a medical student friend to see if he could help. He said no, that it could cost Ethel her life. And then he said to tell Ethel that not getting an abortion would end up being the luckiest day of her life and she would have the happiest baby in the world. On June 10th, 1922, Frances Ethel Gum was born, named for both of her parents. She went on to be called Baby by the family. Now, Judy would later say that this period of her life was the happiest time. It's always sad to me when people are like, the happiest time of my life was like two to five or whatever. When you you barely have memories. Yeah. Um, But living in Grand Rapids with her seemingly happy musical family was pretty idyllic for a while. Now, Little Baby was absolutely doted on at this point and was the apple of Frank's eye. At two years, two months after seeing her sisters perform at the theater, she looked over to her dad, Frank, and said, can I do that, daddy? Now, the family began to plan her stage debut immediately. The idea was to have a Christmas show reveal of the latest gum sister. She joined her sisters, Mary Jane and Virginia, on the stage of her father's movie theater during this Christmas show and sang a chorus of Jingle Bells. But... She wasn't done after one chorus, and she kept singing chorus after chorus after chorus. She's two years old during this, supposedly. So her dad eventually sends the grandmother out to pull her off the stage, and she literally is in tears as she's being pulled off of the stage. Wow. But her tears dried up as she heard the raucous applause, something that Judy would later call the greatest music in the world. Now the duo was a trio, and the gum sisters, some called the gumdrops, uh, were born. But all was not good in the gum marriage. After seven years of marriage, Frank began to act recklessly again. Around this time, he became very invested in a local high school basketball star, traveling with him to games and even staying overnight with him in a hotel one night. Nobody thought anything of it at the time, but when he made advances on two of his young ushers at the New Grand, that got everyone's attention and they started putting two to two to get two and two together. It was made clear to the gums that they were no longer welcome in Grand Rapids. So in June of 1926, the family relocated to Lancaster, California. There they bought the Valley Theater, and the biggest draw was the three little girls that they had together. It was while performing here that audience members began really noticing that the littlest gum, baby or babe, had a voice that was standing out as something truly special. The parents went to great effort to praise the girls equally, but it was just quite clear that Babe had something that they didn't have. She was a star. It's always so incredible when like such a tiny little child has this very like adult sort of voice. Yeah. I mean, that's what's going to be commented on a lot coming up. Like she just never had a kid voice. Right. It was like an a mature woman's voice from a very young age. Yeah. Now, Ethel, of course, began looking towards Hollywood, which is just 42 miles away. Lancaster is just north of L.A. She brought the girls down to do a spot on a KFI radio show called The Kitty's Hour, hosted by Big Brother Ken, and they were immediately offered a regular spot. In 1928, the Gum Sisters enrolled in a dance school run by Ethel Meglin, who ran the Meglin Kitties Dance School, where Shirley Temple got her start, and they appeared with the troupe at its annual Christmas show. 
Through that organization, they made their film debut in a short called The Big Review. Ethel was bringing them down to LA regularly, but bookers and managers seemed interested in Babe most of all. She was the child with the voice of a mature woman, like we just said. People were astonished by her. In fact, at the age of nine, she was invited to perform twice at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Hollywood. Now, the other two sisters, Mary Jane and Virginia, they were actually not that jealous. They were kind of grateful because they didn't really want a life in showbiz. It wasn't for them. They did continue to perform as a trio, but all of Ethel's ambition turned to her youngest daughter. Bay became her complete focus. Now, as an adult, Judy would speak about the fact that she was always so desperate for her mother's love, and this was the, like the first opportunity she had to really get it. And the... Um, She knew Ethel wanted her to be a star, so anything she could do to make that happen would get her her mother's love and attention. Um, Ethel really did give her the full attention, but it was in a controlling and critical way because she wanted Babe to be perfect. Now, Ethel also became kind of an early rendition of a helicopter mom. She forbid Babe from doing anything that might lead to injury and actually kept her homebound to avoid her doing anything unsafe with local kids. People who described Ethel back then said she was cold, not really affectionate, and seemed to treat Babe not as a daughter, but as an asset to be exploited. She became like the OG momager, like Babe was her ticket. Now, Babe loved to sing and perform, but she hated driving down to Hollywood to sing in front of studio execs who basically would sit there stone-faced and detached while she auditioned for them, a perfect distillation of how the Hollywood machine would eventually ruin any joy she found in performing. She would sometimes bring a friend of hers, a little girl named Muggsy, her nickname. (laughs) That was really cute. (laughs) Because she eventually would become suspicious that her mom was fucking the men after the audition. Muggsy recalled being told that they were once told to go outside and play after an audition, and Ethel would be inside with the men for like over an hour sometimes. Now, Ethel was like 40 at the time and never really a great beauty, so it's kind of like, was that really happening? But the girls knew she would do anything to make Babe a star, so nothing was off the table. And Babe was humiliated by even the idea that her mom would do it. Now, Babe was also unable to keep up with Ethel's intense schedule, and Ethel began to give her pet pills. This is also what led to Babe having sleep problems, and then Ethel combated that with sleeping tablets. So by the time she was 10, her mom had already introduced her to the drugs that would be her lifelong companions. Now, Frank would try to beg Ethel to slow things down and let the kid have a life, but he really did nothing to stop her. Ethel was also kind of abusive towards Babe, not physically, but emotionally. If Babe displeased her in any way, she would do things like abandon her in the hotel where they were staying, where she would sit for hours thinking that her mom was never coming back. Um, And then when Babe would return, sometimes after as long as five hours, she would like burst into tears and declare that Babe, I'm sorry, that Ethel was the best mother in the world, to which Ethel would say, you're lucky I came back and I might not next time. Oh. Yeah. So... Things were not going well in the gum marriage either, and Babe became depressed by her parents' constant arguing because it would get quite volatile sometimes. Eventually, Frank began his thing with teen boys again, and Ethel also took on a lover herself, a man named Will Gilmore, who was married to a woman named Laura, who was in a wheelchair after suffering a stroke. They were actually like best friend couples, so this was like a really like bad relationship. This guy was a real piece of shit. Like if you don't get the hint that he would cheat on his wife who was injured or or like suffering. Uh, 
he was like, had a really bad temper, just an all around fucking asshole. When Frank was out of town, they would all have dinner together sometimes. And he would be very mean to babe in particular, criticizing the way she ate. One time he spilled a whole pitcher of water on her on purpose for some reason. Ethel would just stand by when this stuff happened. And sometimes she would even join in the cruel laughter. Once while playing with Muggsy, um, Babe opened the door to an abandoned short storage shed and found them inside together. Muggsy said she didn't see what Babe saw, but her face had lost all color and she appeared stunned. They were fucking inside the stud. Yeah. Now, Frank was really crossing the line on his end as well, patting boys on the asses that were in the theater. Now, these are underage boys. Uh, yeah, are they on the border? Like, they're underage or just 18. Like, right, right. Uh, so he's in a theater. But so he's still like, sexually harassing them. Uh, yeah. So he would also comment on how good their tight pants looked on them. Uh, two of the top high school athletes in town began to brag about making Frank beg them just for a chance to suck their dicks and then telling everyone, he was the best at giving head. When Babe heard these rumors, she blamed Will Gilmore for spreading nasty lies about her dad. Now, by 1933, Ethel finally got what she wanted. She and the girls would be moving to LA while Frank stayed in Lancaster running the theater. Babe was enrolled in Ma Lawler's School for Professional Children, which was just a BS school for pacifying the state requirements for minors who were working at the studios. And Babe and her sisters began working nonstop. It was at the school that she met Mickey Rooney, and they were both the students that everyone was kind of like, oh my God, they're like the ones, you know, they just had a ton of personality. Now, several stories persist about the origin of the use of the name Garland, um, but it's believed that they went on a tour across the country as the Gum Sisters. A man named George Jessel was their MC, and he hated the name because he said it rhymed with bum, crumb, dumb, and scum. Now, Rachel, is there another word you can think of that rhymes with gum? Come. <laughs> is it come? I mean, that's what I think of. <laughs> I wouldn't want that last name. <laughs> so he knew a gar- um a drama critic whose last name was Garland, and he suggested that. And in 1934, the Gum Sisters became the Garland Sisters. Now, in December of that year, the girls were back in L.A. at the Wilshire Apple Theater, and once again, Babe was the knockout punch of the show. A critic in L.A. named W.E. Oliver claimed that she was not your typical smart adult aping child prodigy, but a child who knew how to be herself on stage and gave an emotional performance reminiscent of a young Sarah Bernhardt. Now... Frank is stuck in Lancaster and is very lonely and miserable. He has lost his shield of being this family guy with, with a wife and three kids. So everything he does takes on a new kind of pervy demeanor. I mean, it was already kind of pervy, but now he doesn't even have the family guy shield. The two high school boys he was fucking around with were gone. And he begun a dalliance with another high school boy who became known around town as Frankie's lover boy. All of a sudden, the things that people had ignored in the past became crystal clear once again. This ruined him in Lancaster. He was called a pansy. He faced death threats, and his theater business was pretty much kaput. Frank tried to fight his expulsion from Lancaster, but eventually gave up gave up and joined his family in Los Angeles in 1935. They literally kicked him out again of another town. Imagine even getting kicked out of one town. <laughs> Seriously. Now, although Babe was a star of the stage, her dream of movie stardom was nowhere near to being fulfilled. 
Hollywood could not think of what to do with this unusual talent. She was not a precocious little Shirley Temple type or a standard Hollywood beauty that was usually required for even the teen stars. In the summer of 1935, she decided to make another change to her name, and that's when she took on the name Judy after a Hoagie Carmichael song. In September of 1935, Louis B. Mayer sent a songwriter named Burton Lane to the Orpheum Theater in downtown LA to watch the Garland sisters perform and report back to him. A few days later, Judy and her father were brought in for an audition at MGM, and Garland performed Zing with the Strings of My Heart. The studio immediately signed Garland to a contract with MGM, despite the fact that they still didn't know what to do with the 13-year-old. Now, as Judy's career began to take off, the marriage between Frank and Ethel was worse than ever. Ethel was now continuing her affair with Will Gilmore, and Frank, nearing 50 now, was reflecting on his life, which he considered a series of failures. The one thing that brought him joy was watching Judy shine. He was filled to the brim with pride for his baby girl, and she was still happily daddy's little girl. On November 15, 1935, Frank came down with what appeared to be a bad earache. It was so severe he was rushed to a hospital. Shortly after arriving, he was diagnosed with spinal spinal meningitis and was all but certain to die. While her father is hospitalized, 13-year-old Judy is in the midst of preparing for a radio performance of the um, song Sing With the Strings of My Heart on the Shell Chateau Hour. This is her first professional rendition of this song, which will become a standard in her repertoire um, later on. She is made aware of her father's condition just before she goes on and told that a radio will be placed by his um, bed so he can hear the performance. So she basically sings her heart out knowing that this is the last thing her father will hear. Um, He dies shortly after. You can hear this, by the way. It's on, there's YouTube videos of- 13-year-old Judy. Yeah, singing this song to her dying father. So- Making things even more grim was the fact that Frank dies on Ethel's birthday and he had planned a birthday party for her. So people are arriving at their home with presents to celebrate that day only to find out that the party is canceled because Frank has died. Judy is obviously devastated, but Ethel seemed completely unmoved by his passing. Judy described this event as the worst thing that ever happened to her, adding that when he died, she knew she no longer had anyone on her side. Making matters worth, Ethel will eventually get married to this guy, Will Gilmore. Now, Judy threw herself at this point into this fantasy world of being on the MGM lot in Culver City. MGM MGM became her family. MGM had Louis B. Mayer became her father figure. And while MGM took care of its stars, making all their problems disappear, the cost was that they owned you completely. Ava Gardner joked that MGM stars were the only kind of merchandise allowed to leave the store at night. Things were especially bad for female stars. They faced a lot of sexual harassment and were pretty much expected to offer up sexual favors to those in power. Mayer was one of the worst. Judy was propositioned for sex even as a teenager. She recalled once singing for Mayer who complimented what she was singing and then said that she sang from the heart and placed his hand on her breast to show her where the heart was. Gross. Judy would joke that she was lucky she didn't sing from another part of her anatomy. Judy later told him if he wanted to show her where she sang from, he could point to it and he started to cry in front of her and make her feel bad. Oh my God. Wait, Isn't that what, revolting? Wasn't the um, Girl 27 story an MGM yes. party? Yes. So, I mean, there's so many stories I feel like we'll get into another time. Just like I would 
do like a two-part episode on Louis B. Mayer because he sounds like one of the most awful people to ever exist. I feel like every time we bring up Louis B. Mayer, it's like some horrific story. Have you ever heard a good story about Louis B. Mayer? It's always awful. Like I would just love to read a good book on him because I'm sure he has uh, some fucking problems. (laughs) Um, So now Mayer also has spies monitoring all of his stars. This was headed up by notorious fixer Eddie Mannix. He demanded loyalty and basically made all his stars kiss the ring when they were bad and good, bad boys and girls. Just a really sick fuck. He would even physically assault some of his male stars, including Charlie Chaplin one time. Uh, like, Eddie Mannix did? No. Or Louis, Louis B. Mayer. B. Mayer. And they would just take it because <laughs> they didn't want their careers ruined. Right. So he did take a shine to young Judy Garland once she was signed to MGM. And he, he really tried to work, make her a star, but things were off to a slow start. Her first big role was a loan out to another studio called Pig's, Pigskin Parade. Judy got great reviews, but all she saw was, according to her, and this is a quote, a fat little frightened pig with pigtails. She's 13 in this movie, so it's like so sad. She was convinced it would be her last movie when she saw herself on screen. She was just disgusted. At this point, MGM had another singing prodigy named Deanna Durbin who had a hit movie, and Mara kind of lost interest in Judy, but not for long. So some studio executives were putting together a special birthday party for one of their biggest stars, Clark Gable, and they wanted Judy to sing a special arrangement of You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It to Clark Gable. She's like 13 at this time. Wait, the song's called You Made Me Love You. I I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. So she's singing a very like flirtatious song to Clark Gable at this birthday party. At the end of the song, she tells Gable he had the brand of kisses she would die for. And he walks over and actually kisses Judy, like on the lips. (laughs) She burst into tears. Mickey Rooney would later say it was probably because of his legendary halitosis. <laughs> the audience goes wild when they kiss, and Judy notices that Louis B. Mayer is there beaming at her with pride. She leaves Gable, walks over to him, and sits on his lap, which makes the audience roar even more, and she was back in his good graces. Oi. <laughs> it's so gross. Now... Her rendition of that was so well regarded that she performs the song in an all-star extravaganza, Broadway Melody of 1938, and she sang that to a photograph of Clark Gable. Now, MGM eventually hit on a winning formula when it, I'm sorry, when it paired Garland with Mickey Rooney and a string of what are known as backyard musicals. Garland was put in the cast of the fourth of the Hardy family movies as the girl next door to Rooney's character, Andy Hardy, in Love Finds Andy Hardy. Now, Hardy's interest, love interest in that is played by Lana Turner. This would be a recurring type of typecast for Judy Garland. She's the girl next door and never pretty enough to be the love interest. Judy was um, loved on the MGM set, and I'm sorry, the lot, and people just loved the fact that she seemed like a real kid, but she also really began to be scrutinized for her weight and looks. Her physical appearance was a real dilemma for MGM from the start. She was really short. She was only four foot, 11 inches. And she had this cute girl next door look that didn't really fit their glamorous uh, style of performers that they kind of had. She was really self-conscious and anxious about her appearance. And she went to school with Ava Gardner, Lana Turner, Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) Those are the people she's around every day who are like her peers uh, which is just probably very intimidating. Even- it is so crazy to me to think that people thought Judy Garland was not pretty enough. I know. I just like can't get my head around that. Also, she's like 13 and's like 
these girls, maybe they were like, I, 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 yeah. I mean, she's just 13. She looked like a 13 year old. Also when you're 13, you're definitely, at least I was at my most awkward looking. Yes. I mean, when I look at the pictures of her at 13, you can just, she is definitely more awkward than what we think of, but she's still, she's a very pretty cute girl. Right. She looks her age. Like I'm sure Lana Turner's like look 21 and that's equally inappropriate. Like at 13 or something like, cause they were making those girls look way older than they should have looked. So yeah, I mean, it's crazy, but obviously this had a huge effect on her. Like she was their biggest moneymaker at the time. And she was the ugly duckling. Um, her insecurity was exasperated by Louis B. Mayer, who would refer to her as his little hunchback. Oh, my she God. Would, and she would repeat it back like, I'm his little hunchback. Oh. Like, <laughs> so sad. What like, the fuck? I know. It's so awful. Now, she would later say that this focus on what, what, when, and how she ate would be the most memorable thing about her childhood. Every time she picked up so much as a French fry, she felt like she was ruining MGM's most valuable commodity. The studio also began to use shaming to get her into MGM shape. They would stand her in front of a mirror next to an overweight mannequin and ask her if she wanted to be a fat woman or a star. This is when she's 13 years old. Like, not that it makes it better at 21, but this is just unbelievable to me. This stuff would backfire and Judy began to eat comfort food. Like she found like comfort in food at that point, which led to even stricter monitoring by the studio. They were determined to starve her skinny. Mary even had the studio commissary ignore whatever she wanted to order. And they were only allowed to serve him his mother's matzo ball soup. Wait a minute. (laughs) Judy was only allowed to have matzo ball soup. All she was allowed was his mother's matzo ball soup recipe. I would argue that matzo balls have, are are like, have a lot of calories. It's not a great idea, but... And even though I love matzo ball soup, I don't want to eat that for every meal. And I bet you they were small. (laughs) (laughs) So she described it as a prisoner's menu. I think they also gave her like lettuce, like just plain lettuce, and said the soup was salted with her tears. Spies were all over the lot reporting if they saw her eat anything forbidden. Can you imagine that? That's demented. And Ethel agreed to be the spy at home. But Judy still managed to get a secret candy stash hidden away. Um, Already on uppers and sleeping pills, the studio added diet pills to the mix. These pills were a combo of benzedrine and phenobarbital. They were considered miracle pills at the time and were also used for energy and focus. So (laughs) she's on uppers and diet pills? Yes. Because diet pills are uppers. I guess this is a different one. Or maybe they replaced the upper. I have no idea. So writer Joseph Mankiewicz said he... The first time he tried these diet pills, he had never written so much as he, or these miracle pills, he had never written as much as he did. Um, and he was like, give me a room full of them. <laughs> so all of these people are like on speed. <laughs> they think they're like miracle pills. So they're being used for diet and for like focus. So um, guys, I guess, are using them for other reasons or like uh, non-actors. Um, so... Rooney, by the way, Mickey Rooney denies that the studio was supplying people with pills. According to him, Judy Garland was never given any drugs by MGM. Mr. Mayor did not sanction anything like that for Judy. No one on that lot was responsible for Judy Garland's death. Unfortunately, Judy chose that path. I don't buy that for a second. Well, maybe they weren't giving them to Mickey Rooney. Seriously? Clearly. Also, like, why are you blaming Judy? (laughs) Just stop. Like, how dare you? (laughs) Well, look... I'm not saying it's not her fault, but like he doesn't have to say anything. 
shut up, Mickey Rooney. Like, I just don't buy for a second that the studio wasn't like, hey, have you heard, like, even if it was more, not as direct as she claims, like, I think they were low-key, like, get on these diet pills. Or recommended them. Seriously. And the mom put, put them, put yeah. her on them. But she did lose weight. And in 1938, MGM placed a full-paged ad that said, it's a little too early to predict, but here's a prophecy for 1938. Judy Garland's stardom. And that would be a prophecy that was not too far off. Hey, we're back to tell you about a few more things exclusive to AMC Plus that we think you'll love, including the next true crime series you'll obsess over, Des, starring Doctor Who's David Tennant as real-life serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Want to get lost in an addictive, bingeable drama? Check out Riviera, a Sundance Now original starring Julia Stiles. Catch up on season one and season two of the sun-soaked thriller and don't miss season three, which is now streaming. If you're looking for something that Metro calls more than a touch of Tarantino, watch the powerful new drama Gangs of London. AMC Plus is available on all your devices, ad-free and on-demand. Watch new series, episodes, movies, and fresh content anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. Sign up today at amcplus.com. That's amcplus.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Judy goes on a little singing tour, and while she is in Pittsburgh, she hears the news that MGM has bought the rights to Frank L. Baum's The Wizard of Oz. Even more surprising, she's announced to play the lead role of Dorothy Gale. The budget of the movie at the time was an astronomical $2 million. Now, when MGM bought the rights, they had no idea what they were going to do with the movie version. In fact, many of the final decisions, including casting ones, were because the first choices and sometimes even the second choices didn't work out. Although producers Arthur Freed and Mervyn Leroy had wanted to cast Judy in the role from the beginning, studio chief Louis B. Mayer first tried to borrow Shirley Temple from 20th Century Fox. They declined, and the truth is Temple was just not really that much of a singer. Deanna Durbin was then asked but was unavailable. This resulted in Garland finally being cast. W.C. Fields was originally cast as the Wizard and Fanny Bryce as Glenda the Good Witch. They dropped out, as well as the second choices, leading to Frank Morgan and Billy Burke getting the roles. Boy, can you imagine if you dropped out of that? (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Yeah. Um, Now, a lot of these changes, especially in this initial casting with W.C. Fields and Fanny Bryce, that really shifted the film from being like a slapstick comedy to more of a drama with a lot of comedic bits, which is honestly, that's how it should have been. Like, thank God. So another original idea that was scrapped was making the music more operatic. They wanted to do it like a, like an opera type music style, which I think would have been awful. It eventually went 
to like a more traditional musical route. And the iconic songs were written by Harold Arlen and E.Y. Harburg. Oz began to film in April of 1938 and was actually quite a difficult movie to film, especially uh, technically with the flying monkeys. There was lots of like special effects, falling houses, burning, like witches disappearing in smoke. Not to mention the film was going to be made in black and white and technicolor, which is honestly one of the most amazing moments in movie history for me. When it goes into color, I just remember as a kid seeing that and honestly being like, oh, like, and every time I think I saw it, you know, like it used to be a movie that was on once a year, maybe like one of those type of movies. And every time I would watch it, I would just be waiting for that moment to happen. It was really uh, great. Now, Technicolor was also a new technology at this time, and it hadn't been used that often. It had some weird coloring issues that they had to deal with, including turning yellows into green, which created a real challenge for the crew because they had a yellow brick road that had to be yellow. They like worked really tirelessly to find the perfect yellow that wouldn't turn green when it was being filmed. The reproduction, I'm sorry, the production was constantly pushed back due to a lot of these challenges. Additional casting was also made, including Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West, Ray Bulger, Bert Lahr, and Buddy Ebsen were cast as um, the Scarecrow, uh, the Lion, the Cowardly Lion, and the Tin Man. And um, they were all paid more than Judy. Only Toto was paid less at one twenty-five <laughs> per week to Judy's five hundred. Actually, that's not true. The Munchkin actor actors were paid less than even Toto. <gasps> oh, I know. So, and believe me, they were not happy about it, as they should have been. Uh, not happy. She- <laughs> I mean, Toto was in more seats. Yeah, but these are human <laughs> beings, Desi. I know. So shooting was finally officially starting in October of 1938. So a lot of this stuff is pre-production problems. But another setback happens then when they start filming. Buddy Ebsen has a near lethal reaction to the aluminum powder that used to create his Tin Man look and is placed in an oxygen tent. Like he had like, his lungs were like having an allergic reaction to this stuff. He's basically breathing it in. (laughs) Mervyn Leroy at this point, because things shut down, has a chance to look over some of the footage that has been shot and is not happy. He fires the director, Richard Thropp, on the spot when he sees what he sees and finds it completely uninspiring. Now, George Kukar stops in and he's brought in to kind of fix things, but only for a week, he instantly sees what the problem is. Uh, Thorpe had kind of like tried to make Dorothy a real glamour girl. They had put Judy Garland in like a glamour girl blonde wig as Dorothy. Yeah. He also had directed a sort of more cutesy performance from her and Kukor believed that she had to be a believable farm girl from Kansas who was completely sincere since she was the stand-in for the audience seeing all of these incredible things for the first time. And most importantly, it couldn't appear to be a fantasy land. Oz had to be real to Dorothy, allowing it to be real to the audience. Kukor was only on the set for a week, like I said, but he was crucial in setting the tone for the movie we know and love today. On November 4th, shooting begins again with director Victor Fleming at the helm, and Jack ha- Jack Haley is brought in to replace Buddy ha- Ebsen as the Tin Man. He's still recovering. He just doesn't recover in time to do the movie. He does get to be um, in the Beverly Hillbillies Those- as the Pa or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now... This continues to be a difficult shoot for everyone, especially the main actors, like the three plus Judy. Um, they're 
going through two hours of makeup every morning and then in these hot and uncomfortable costumes all day. Judy has a lighter gingham dress, but her breasts are bound to make her appear younger. So she's just really uncomfortable all day as well. Things get more chaotic when the 120 actors who play the munchkins arrive on the studio lot. Now, we've all heard stories. <laughs> I'm going to get into a little bit of them. Uh, look, these munchkins, these actors playing the munchkins love to party. They basically come on set. There is rumors that they're having orgies. They're having huge drinking binges. Um, Judy, in an interview with Jack Parr in 1969, said they were little drunks. They got smashed every night, and people from the studio had to pick them up in butterfly nets. What? <laughs> I, think, I think she said that they would corral them in butterfly nets. Because <laughs> they were so hammered? I have no idea, but it's like quite a visual. Um, now, there were also... The other story in this book that was really weird to me, and I don't quite understand what happened, but at some point, one of the munchkins fell into a toilet. (laughs) And at that point, the studio required a large person to go with someone playing a munchkin every time they went to the bathroom to make sure it didn't happen again. I can only assume it was like pot porta potty, like some kind of version of that. Where yeah. you have a bigger hole. I have no idea. Like an outhouse. Maybe they were drunk and they like had an accident. Now, uh, Judy's ex, you know, one of her ex-husbands, Sid Luff, released a book uh, in the 2000s at some point called Judy and I, My Life with Judy Garland. And in that, he reports that, uh, this is a quote, they'd make Judy's life miserable on set by putting their hands under her dress. These are the actors who played the munchkins. The men were 40 or more years old. They thought they could get away with anything because they were so small. So there are these rumors that the munchkins like molested Judy or were like inappropriately touching her. But I, it's really basically in this guy's book, Sid Luff's book. That's um, where that rumor started? Yes. And that kind of came out in the 2000s. There were like a bunch of news stories about like the munchkins molested Judy Garland. Like, I remember those stories. Yeah. It was like a shocking headline. Right. But there's no real evidence of that as far as I can tell. Now, other injuries that happened on the set include Margaret Hamilton got burned in the scene where she says, I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too, and then disappears in this like explosion of smoke. Uh, the stunt was supposed to go down that she's kind of on this elevator platform that lowers as the flames rise, and something happened where that didn't happen. So when that smoke flame burst, she was still there, and her hat and broom caught on fire. She suffered burns on her face and hand, and she refused to do more fire stunt work after that. Toto also was injured. <gasps> um, his paw was stepped on by one of the witch's guards. Oh, <laughs> he was replaced by another dog briefly. What? Yeah. So some other dog's fucking playing Toto in some scenes. Now, the shoot was a grueling five months, which was over twice as long as a normal film shoot. Adding to that fact was that Victor Fleming left before filming all the Kansas scenes to go direct Gone with the Wind, so a new director was brought in to film all the black and white scenes. That director is King Vidor, and this this was once again a lucky change, since Vidor was much more suited to these low-key, more emotional, slower scenes than, than Fleming, who was sort of known for doing big action-type stuff. So this is most evident... Uh, and the longing portrayed in the pivotal over the rainbow scene, which was unbelievably almost cut during the editing process. What? They were trying to get the movie cut down so kids would stay, and they almost cut the under the rainbow scene. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, over the rainbow sea. Under the rainbow. I can't get that on my head now. Isn't that crazy? That is insane. I when I hear things like this, I'm like, it's like they don't know. It's like that's the best scene. <laughs> like, that's the most emotional scene. Are you crazy? Like, how would you even think of that? Also, the song is so good. Like uh, that's like crazy to think that song almost was never known to the world in that yes. way. So by the end of it all, the film cost over almost $4 million, but was the smash hit of the year, even though it earned $3 million. It would make up its money over time because it got re-released, and then it's obviously been on TV. So it's a huge financial success overall. At the Oscars in 1940, Gone with the Wind won all the major categories, but Judy got a special award for Juvenile Performer of the Year, something she called the Munchkin Award. Now, Judy was MGM's biggest star at this point, and she bought her very own Christmas card house in Bel Air. I looked up this house. It's like not the the big mansion that you would think of. It's like this sweet little like brick and white kind of homey home, like just a classic house. And much like Judy, the home was picture perfect on the outside, but inside it felt empty with just her mom and not her beloved dad. So it just once again presenting this image that just wasn't what it seemed. Now, after the success of Wizard of Oz, Garland stars in three films released in 1940, including Andy Hardy Meets A Debutante, where she once again is back to playing second fiddle to Mickey Rooney. She's also still not deemed hot enough to be the love interest to Mickey fucking Rooney. That's (laughs) insulting. It's so insulting. She also stars in Little Nellie Kelly. This was like sort of a more adult role for her. She had to use an accent. She had her first adult kiss and she had the only death scene of her career. Her co-star in this movie, George Murphy, who is the person she kisses, said afterwards that he felt like a hillbilly with a child bride when kissing her. This is like the one adult right now in Judy's life that, that is like not sexualizing her. Yeah, exactly. So MGM still wanted to keep that girl next door image for Jim, um, for Judy. And in public, she definitely kind of played up the chaste, like, uh, you know, image. She said she wasn't planning on getting married until she was 24. She said that she wasn't even interested in boys. That was not the case at all. Judy was like a little bit of a hoe. She was fucking a lot of people at this time when she was playing this chaste. I mean, she's 18 at this point after Wizard of Oz. Uh, so she's having sex. But she was completely smitten and desperate to marry the man of her dreams, band leader Artie Shaw, who was a real ladies' man. Now, they were actually close friends despite the age difference. He was about 15 years older than her, but they really bonded over their insecurities. Um, for, unfortunately for Judy, Shaw saw her as his kid sister. Aww. So he also treated her with sort of not sexually, but she really wanted him to. He considered the idea of fucking her to be incestuous, basically. Besides, Judy was not his type. He went for more the typical long-laid glamour girl thing. And Judy just had a tendency to fall hard for people when she did. So she was really in love with Artie Shaw. Despite all the signs indicating that they would never be together, she was convinced she would be the third Mrs. Artie Shaw. She was devastated in early 1940 when she saw that someone else had gotten that title. Oh. That person was her longtime rival, Lana Turner. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> they eloped almost, they like met and got married, like, imme- like flew to Vegas and got married like immediately. He was just like, oh, <laughs> Lana Turner. <laughs> 
Now, she found out by newspaper headline the next day and was distraught when she saw this headline. So Ethel calls Artie, telling him that he had broken Judy's heart. And he actually didn't want to break her heart. He really cared about Judy as his little sister. I mean, to be fair, they weren't dating. She had it. Sometimes I was reading this book and it was like, Judy thought they were lovers. I was like, well, why did she think that? And there was like, they had never slept together. I was like, so she had like a real like fantasy going on. I think about this relationship that did not exist. Wow. So he tries to make amends with Judy. And this is what he says to her. Lana is a whole, I'm sorry. Lana is a whole different thing. Lana is a woman I will have sex with. (gasps) And I never thought of you that way and didn't think you thought of me that way. Obviously, that made things much, <laughs> much worse. Look, Judy, Lana is someone I want to fuck. <laughs> yeah. You are someone I do not want to fuck. Is that clear? Lana is a woman I want to have sex with. <laughs> so he like invites her over at some point to like have dinner with the newlyweds. And she's like, uh, she actually says to him something very biting. She said, Lana is nice, but talking to her is like talking to a beautiful vase. Oh, so. Lana and Artie get divorced four months later. I bet I bet she was like, ha. <laughs> <laughs> now, although Judy would have traded places with Lana looks-wise anytime, reviewers were starting to notice that Judy was not ugly. She was herself quite a beauty. And that was sort of being noticed in these reviews. In the early 40s, in addition to her work with Mickey Rooney... In, the, in all of those films were very popular and big money makers. She was also starting to work a lot with famed director Busby Berkeley on movies like Strike Up the Band, Zigfield Girl, and Babes in Arms. Now, Busby was quite a toxic personality, an absolute megalomaniac, and Judy really suffered working with him all those years. She was so stressed to perform to, to his like exact expectations that she was unable to sleep once again, and her um, dependence on prescription drugs got even worse during this period. In 1940, Garland began a relationship with a musician named David Rose. On, On her 18th birthday, he gave her an engagement ring. The studio intervened at the time because they didn't want them to get married, period, but he was also still married to actress and singer Martha Ray. They agreed to wait a year to follow, I'm sorry, to allow for his divorce. And during that time, Garland has a brief affair with songwriter Johnny Mercer. After they break up, Garland and Rose are wed on July 27th, 1941. The tabloids or the those kind of papers call it a true rarity about their, <laughs> that's how they describe their marriage. Um, but it's only because it's so weird and so not a good idea. He's also like 13 years older than her. He's like 31, I think. But I saw some pictures of him when they were married. And he, sw- I swear to God, this guy looks like he's in his 50s. He's like, that's a 30. I, I, I was shocked. I was like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, no one really who knows them gets their relationship. But he is, I think, really nice to her at the, at the start. Um, their marriage does start off very happy and quickly falls apart as his sort of passive aggressive and moody sides begin begins to emerge. Judy would complain of his endless silences that would leave her distraught. So they would get into a fight and he would just not speak to her for days on end. And she's like 18 years old. Uh, he's also upset because Judy's mom, Ethel, is constantly interfering in their marriage, sticking their nose in, sticking her nose into everything, including their finances. In the fall of 1942, Judy finds out she's pregnant, and even though she wanted a child desperately, It becomes a source of anxiety because she knows the studio will not be happy. Ethel and the studio pressure her to get rid of the baby, and David agrees it was best to terminate the pregnancy. So Judy has her first abortion. 
she could not recover from him siding against her in this decision. Um, by January, they announced that they were separating. But there might have been more to the separation than just this disagreement about the abortion. Post-abortion, but before the announcement, she had met Tyrone Power at a party, and the two had fallen deeply in love, like instantly. He's a bad boy. Uh, yes, he is. <laughs> now, they were both coming off of marriages to older spouses, and they were addicted to this unbridled sexual chemistry that they had between them. Now, I think we talked about Tyrone and Scotty Bowers episode. Yes. He was widely considered a DL, on the DL, bisexual man and and getting a lot of action. A lot of action. A lot of action. He's very good looking leading man type. Now, in his previous relationships with women, he never was able to give up men. Like he always was allowed to have these uh side pieces. But Judy was unlike other any other woman he had been with and she was convinced she was the one who could make him satisfied with just being with one woman. I don't think that's the case, Judy. Now Technically, because they're both still married, the studio is like, uh, no, you cannot have an affair and get busted while you guys are married. He's married to this woman named Annabella. I kind of like, lo- I love Annabella because he, <laughs> Tyrone Power comes off kind of like a wimp in this situation. He can't bring himself to tell Annabella that he wants a divorce. So he tries to bring it up in subtle ways where she gets the hint, but she just, she knows what he's doing and she just doesn't ever uh, give it to him. <laughs> and then when he asked her directly, finally one time, she's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, I tried. It's like, was I mean, they go into it for a much longer time. He's just like, it's unbelievable to me because I was like, oh, I'd be so turned off by this guy. And Judy kind of is. She's like, when are you going to ask for the divorce? Now, she gets pregnant by Tyrone Power. Um, so that's very dire because she cannot have a pregnancy. She, so she's like, you need to get divorced fast, get a quickie divorce, and we need to get married so we can keep this baby. She tells him if he doesn't get divorced and marry her, she will have no choice but to get the abortion. She does get the abortion because he does not end his marriage and the affair ends. Now, he eventually goes, he like enlists in, um, I can't remember which branch of the military, and goes off to Europe to serve during World War II. The next time he sees Judy is on the screen in Meet Me in St. Louis, where he would declare that she had never looked more beautiful. Now, before she starts filming Meet Me in St. Louis, she has a brief affair with director-screenwriter Joseph Mankiewicz, who introduces her to the wonderful world of psychoanalysis. Unfortunately for Ethel, this leads to Judy setting up some boundaries with her domineering mother, who then goes to MGM to complain to Louis B. Mayer that that her daughter is going into therapy. Now, he actually agrees that it's a bad idea for Judy to be going to a psychoanalysis. In fact, he's like, I don't want any of my stars going to therapy. (laughs) I don't want any of my stars to be mentally well. He knew he had to get Joe to be the one to get Judy off of therapy because he... He knew that forcing her would make her more stubborn about doing it. So he he gets Ethel and they invite Joe into the office to have a little powwow about getting Joe um, Judy out of therapy. This blows up into a huge fucking uh, confrontation. Joe Mankiewicz is like a real tough guy. Part of the problem is he's not scared of Louis B. Mayer. He's like one of the rare people who isn't, which makes him incredibly hot, actually. Now, he... 
this this blows up to like this level where he says to Louis B. Mayer, this studio isn't big enough for the two of us. One of us has to go, which is a pretty funny thing to say to the head of the studio. <laughs> he he gets so he leaves. Mankiewicz leaves and he's immediately swept up by 20th Century Fox and goes on to have a very lucrative Oscar-filled writing and directing career, including writing and directing one of my all-time favorite movies, All About Eve. His brother is Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Now, this meeting gained nothing for Louis B. Mayer and Ethel. MGM loses Joe as a screenwriter and director, and Judy continues to see her analyst and Joe. But I forgot to mention, Joe's married. His uh, wife has just been off in a sanitarium recovering from some bout with mental illness. Not the sanitarium. Yes, a sanitarium. I think somewhere in the Midwest. I would go straight back to the sanitarium if I found out my husband was <laughs> cheating on me while I was at the sanitarium. Now, Judy saw the writing on the wall, and at the beginning of 1944, she tells Joe Mankiewicz that she's pregnant. But Joe, who is an expert in psychoanalysis, sees right through her lies. He knows she's lying. Like he analyzes some certain things about her behavior and, <laughs> and figures out that she's lying. He's right, by the way. Oh my God. But you have to hear this story because I find this story to be very quick, very, very sweet and like poignant. He because he's so into psychology, he realizes that if he confronts her about lying, it will damage her already fragile ego. So he goes along with everything she says as if it's the absolute fact. He agrees to go with her to get the abortion, which she's going to have done, I think, in New York. So they travel across the country together by train. When they get to the abortion doctor, she takes a test that says she's not pregnant after <gasps> all. Busted. And he goes along with her all the time like, oh my God, it was an accident. It was a false positive or whatever. And he never tells her that he knows she was lying. Wow. And they um, are elated. Like, oh, we don't have to go through that. And then they travel back to Los Angeles together. And Judy knows that this will be the last time she gets to spend with him. So she kind of savors every moment. And Joe knew too. And he said that um, the break they never had like a real breakup. It just kind of faded out. And that was what was so wonderful about it to him. Don't you think that's such a sweet thing to do to her? Like, look, I mean, it's fucked up. Also like, (laughs) look, that's a nice, it was a nice, it was a nice gesture on his part, but he is still cheating with his cheating on his wife. Well, take that out of the, okay. Like he didn't want to have her be treated like a lying and needy woman. I just feel like it was kind of sweet. (laughs) (laughs) That's my opinion. The bar is so low for Judy at this point. Yes. Now, Joe remains her cheerleader, though, for the rest of her life. He's like a very good person in her life. He tells her she's a great actress and that she should demand more from the studio. She does just that when she is offered the role of another 17-year-old who is a girl next door in a family musical. She was sure that Meet Me in St. Louis would be awful for her career. Now, nothing made sense about this movie to Judy, most of all the director, Vincente Minnelli, who did not have much film experience and was taking on this big-budget Technicolor musical. For his part, Minnelli knew he had to get Judy to sign on for it to like go forward. He tries to convince her that the script is magical, but she just does not see it. Despite all of that, she grudgingly uh, agrees to like take on the role of Esther, but she's difficult from day one. Her pattern of unreliability, showing up late, calling in sick, escalates on the set of Meet Me in St. Louis, as does her pill usage. She even explains to a, I'm sorry, bewildered Minnelli at some point that the pills weren't the problem. They were how she was able to give her best. And didn't he want her at her best? That seems like like a real drug addict behavior. (laughs) The pills aren't 
the problem. They're what's helping. <laughs> so Manelli and Judy did not get along on set. He was really unhappy with her performance and she didn't get his low-key directing style. She would do take after take after take something sometimes and nothing seemed to please him. It got to the point where Judy really felt like she had lost her talent. She was also upset when she saw how child star Margaret O'Brien's mother would manipulate her before scenes where she was supposed to cry, including telling her that her dog was going to be killed. Yes. These moms during this period are so awful. Now, Margaret's mom would also pull Margaret out of the shoot at one point, saying that Margaret was sick, but it was just a stunt to get her more money. Uh, She just seems like an awful woman, and maybe Margaret O'Brien will be a good story at some point, because she had a really bad childhood, almost as bad as Judy's, from what I can tell. Now, this set was actually plagued by real illnesses as well, but Judy... You know, she didn't get sick, but she did eventually come around to the idea that something magical was happening after Mary Astor, who plays the mom in the movie, made her watch some of the dailies. Uh, another big change that took place during this movie was with Judy's look. Now, we we hit on a bit during the early years at the studio. Uh, she was really played up this girl next door image. They would photograph her in plain garments or frilly juvenile type dresses. They had her wear removable caps on her teeth and rubberized discs to like reshape her nose. And she at some point meets a makeup artist named Dottie Ponadel who works at MGM. And this woman says to her, uh, you don't need those caps and discs. Uh, You're actually a very pretty girl. Wait, (laughs) she, she had prosthetic nose pieces? Yes. On her nose in early movies. Holy shit. So this woman's like the first person who, at MGM who's like, you're actually pretty without those things. Like, what are you doing? This like obviously is something Judy has wanted to hear her whole life. She gets this woman a job on Meet Me in St. Louis and pretty much works with her on every film she does with MGM uh, going forward. Um, what is considered a plotless story initially, like this movie didn't seem to have a strong plot because it's really just sort of um, a family vignette. It's about a family. The dad gets a job in New York and they're going to have to leave their beloved home. Uh, it ends up being a huge triumph. It's a huge hit. Judy herself is the first to admit she was wrong when she saw the finished product. No one got it on the page, but Vincent Minnelli, or Vincente Minnelli did. Wait, can I just say one thing that I did not know? What? He's not a, he's not from Italy. <laughs> I did not know. First of all, his original name is Lester Minnelli. He changed it to Vincente at some point as an adult. I thought it was just Vincent Minnelli. I thought it was Vincente. I thought it was Vincent uh, Minnelli. It's not spelled Vincent. It's spelled differently. I just thought he just thought had he an E on the end. Well, you know what? Who knows what this guy's doing? <laughs> I but thought he was from Italy. You did? Yes. I just assumed he was Italian-American. No, I literally thought this guy was from like a European director who so, came into Hollywood. So he did the thing that people, the opposite of what a lot of people <laughs> in Hollywood were doing is he made his name sound way less anglicized. Yes. By adding Vincente. So he was like Lester Minnelli from the Midwest. That's who he was. Interesting. <laughs> okay. I just did not know that. I really assumed he was some like artsy European director because he's known for this very artistic style and kind of being a flamboyant personality. I just yeah. thought he was European. Yeah. So anyway, it doesn't really matter. I just thought it was interesting. And maybe you guys are dumb like me <laughs> and didn't know. So yeah, so this is a huge hit uh, movie. Now, one of the highlights and most touching scenes in the movie is when Judy sings Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas to her younger sister that is played by Margaret O'Brien. This is a scene 
The family is distraught by the father's plan to move the family to New York City for a job. They're leaving behind their beloved home in St. Louis just before the 1904 World's Fair begins. It's a scene set on Christmas Eve, and Judy's character Esther sings the song to cheer up her five-year-old sister Tootie, who is really upset about this uh, pending move. It's a really sweet, really sweet scene. Um, so some of the original lyrics, just a little bit about the song, some of the original lyrics that were penned were initially rejected from, um, the producers, Vincent Minnelli and Judy Garland, because they were too depressing. Uh, one of the lyrics that needed to be changed was it may be your last, or you know, it may be your last next year. We may all be living in the past. That was changed to let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. So it's like slightly more grim. This song became a huge hit with um, people serving in World War II, like troops. They loved this song because it was about, you know, getting back home and very sentimental. When she performed this at the Hollywood Canteen, it would bring soldiers to tears. In 1957, Frank Sinatra uh, did like a hit version of the song and he wanted it to have some lyric changes as well. One of the lines until then, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. He wanted that change because his album was called a jolly Christmas and he wanted them to jolly it up. So they changed that line to hang a shining star upon the highest bough. That was him. He changed that line. Yeah. Oh, he had that line changed. I thought it was always that. No, it's originally like much darker. So a lot of these darker lyrics got changed throughout, well, at least these two um, incidents. Uh, she also had a big hit performing this on the Judy Garland show Christmas special, and she sang the songs to her, um, the song to her children, Joey and Lorna Luft, with Salt, I'm sorry, Sinatra's lyrics. Like she used the yeah. new ones. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, yeah. That I feel like this, the bow one is pretty famous. <laughs> I feel like everyone uses the star on the bow hanging what out. What is that. a is a bow on the tree? Yeah. Okay. I think right. Yeah. This time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was one of her most successful films for MGM. Uh, in addition to "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," it has a few of her other classic songs, including "The Boy Next Door" and "The Trolley Song." Judy also begins to really like Minnelli now. When she watches these dailies, her heart really begins to melt for him because she finally sees something she has never seen before. Unlike past directors, Minnelli has made her look very beautiful. Um, obviously, credit goes to the makeup and costume designer, Irene Seraph, but it was really Minnelli who orchestrated this whole new look for her and made every frame of her stunning. Not only does she look beautiful, but Judy, Judy finally feels beautiful. So she's just like, see, I feel like that's, you've heard this before where it's like, he's in love with her <laughs> by the way he shoots her or right, something like right. that. Uh, and he, his background is um, is in that area. So just weeks after filming ended, they were living together, and it turned out they had a lot in common. Both had grown up in these showbiz families, but unlike Judy Vince, Vincente or Vincent, who the hell knows, was shy <laughs> and not a performer, but he was a genius at design and began working in stage and even got a job doing like window dressing and creating these stunning visual displays. He became well-known for the visual look of his stage productions. And when he moved to New York, he quickly found success with his smart and stunning productions. I, there was something I also read about even with women in his life, he would dress them and like 
all this kind of stuff. Like he just had an eye for this stuff. Now, MGM's Arthur Freed lured him to Hollywood at some point and signed him to a contract to basically learn the craft of filmmaking. He eventually directs his first movie, the all-black musical Cabin in the Sky, which is a critical and commercial success and sets up basically what this Minnelli style is. He's just very famous for this particular like visually stunning, dreamy kind of look. Now, he's an unusual guy. Yes. This guy. Yes. <laughs> to say the least. People found him incredibly unattractive just physically and they were turned off. He had a few physical tics and like weird things that people kind of got like, what? Uh, people were really turned off also by the fact that he was really effeminate. He I was, was very, That's what I was going to say is people thought of him as this very effeminate man. Yes. And part of the discomfort there is that he was widely to, believed to be gay. Now, he was rumored to have been in a relationship with a man when he lived in New York. And he was even rumored to be hooking up with men when he moved to West Hollywood uh, when he was signed with MGM. So when Judy hears about these rumors, she dismisses him saying that he just has an artistic flair. Like that's who he is. And that's quite possible, but I don't know if it was all of it in this case. Like he might have been bisexual or gay. Now, she breaks things off with Vincente, actually, because Joe Mankiewicz comes back into her life. But after a few months of that kind of thing, she still realizes he's not going to leave his wife for her, and she goes back to Manelli. But this would not be the end of the relationship with Joe, as I said earlier. Um, he didn't see her as just one of his many affairs. And in the book, he is quoted as saying, I guess I've had my share of affairs with women, but they only exist as affairs with women. Every year as I grow older, the memory of what we did and what we went through when it when what when we did, it grows dimmer and dimmer. That isn't the case with Judy. I remember her as I would remember an emotion and a mood, an emotional experience that is an event. So he really saw her as something more than just this woman he was banging or whatever. For Judy she considered Joe the love of her life, like for sure. And when she eventually sings that song, The Man Who Got Away, years later, it becomes another one of her signature songs. That's who she's thinking of. And she's even gone to like Hollywood parties later on singing this and looking at him and he's like, cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> like he gets pissed because she like stares right at him All when right. she sings it. Okay, so she gets back with Manelli. Things get hot and heavy again. She's even busted by three extras blowing him in an alley on the MGM lot. Whoa. They promise they won't say, say anything, but what she doesn't realize is that some like set people were up high <laughs> and they also saw it and they weren't, they didn't promise to not say anything. <laughs> so they like basically tell everyone, like, hey, Judy Garland's blowing. <laughs> Vincent Manelli. Can you imagine coming across that? Amazing. Yeah. So this is a real case of like her loving the fact that he loves her so much. I think like just hearing it, it's, I feel like she just becomes enamored with his love of her. Mm -hmm. They get engaged in 1945, but that doesn't stop Judy from having an affair with Orson Welles, who was at the time married to Rita Hayworth. This is another thing the studios are like, uh, no, like you can't do this. This will ruin both of your careers. That must've felt great for Judy. (laughs) having someone cheat on Rita Hayworth for you oh my after God. everything she's been been through like oh. I'm just saying now they end their affair and they remain on good terms it's not a bad end 
The marriage of Minnelli and Judy has MGM's full backing. They fucking love this. This is a story they can sell. And the two are married on June 15th, 1945. Now, he describes the early months of their marriage as their happiest times. Both are given um, time off and travel to New York City. In New York City, she makes this grand gesture, throwing all of her pills in the East River with him by her side. By the time they return to LA in August, Judy finds out that she is pregnant. She calls her mom to tell her, saying she's going to have a baby. And then after a pause, she's like, do you mind? (laughs) (laughs) I like when Judy sets up boundaries with (laughs) Ethel. You got to love it. So they buy a home together and Judy tries to play the happy homemaker. She's obviously not great at it. The baby also uh, strengthens Judy's vow to stay off pills, but the pain of withdrawal and the stress of pregnancy really spiral her into a deep depression. On March 12, 1946, their daughter Eliza is born. Although rumors around town were there were that there was no way Minnelli was the dad because um, they thought like, oh, he's gay. Like there's no way he's they the dad. They look alike. I know. Well, that's the thing. He, she it's looks, complete bullshit. She looks just like a perfect <laughs> yeah. combination of her mother and father. I mean, father. she has like this dark hair, huge eyes full. I mean, she looks exactly like Vincent, his daughter. Now... And he says, according to him, the most beautiful baby in the nursery when he sees his daughter, Liza. Her parents actually named her after Ira Gershwin's song, Liza, All the Clouds Will Roll Away. That's not what happened (laughs) in this situation. Although Judy seems to have found her fairy tale ending, uh, she is soon back on pills and spiraling once again into like hell. And that's where we'll leave off this week. Wow, Des. (laughs) I'm excited to hear part two. I mean, I think it's going to get gnarly in part two. I love Liza Minnelli. I know. I mean, she's her own episode too. Of course. But yeah, I was looking at some of the pictures in this book. I mean, there's so many good pictures, so maybe we'll post extra this week. Because it's just like seeing her with Judy Garland when she's like a little kid. It's so cute. (laughs) I don't know what. It's just so... There's something about it where it's just like, oh my God, like what... How... How did this happen? <laughs> did I tell you about the time I saw Liza Minnelli sing live when I was a teenager? Oh. I have no idea how. I like my friend and I, my best friend and I got tickets to some like weird like fashion benefit show in the city in San Francisco. Um and Liza Minnelli was like the the headliner performer that night. She was doing like a special Ooh. like and she of course did cabaret. Of course. And she could barely get through the song, but she just fucking powered through it. It was incredible. Yeah, I and when she said that's what comes from too much pills and liquor, <laughs> when she said that's what comes from too much pills and liquor, the entire audience just started roaring. Yeah, and she was like laughing too She's, about it. I love her. I love her. I when I had a gay uncle growing up who took me to Broadway shows every day, <laughs> every year, not every day. We would go to like maybe twice a year. I'd go into the city and go to a Broadway show with him, and he took me to see Victor Victoria. I can't remember who was originally supposed to be it, but they weren't there, and she filled in <gasps> for the lead role. Oh my god! Yeah, what yeah. a treat! I know. I was like, okay, because <laughs> normally you're kind of disappointed when there's like a substitute. But, but she might have Minnelli. Yeah, she kind of like she might have filled in for like a longer period, but I think I just didn't know because you know when you're a kid, you're not following news on Broadway <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so it was like really exciting. So I saw her in that uh, Broadway play. Amazing. She was in. Yeah. She will be an episode at some point. I love her. I love like, her. Like I almost cry sometimes when I see them. I love them so much. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love them? <laughs> They're like the greatest. Liza and Judy? Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's an insane combo. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> 
Um, wow. So yeah, I'm excited for next week. Me too. Wow, great episode. Okay, should we let's end oh, the yeah. show by thanking our Patreon contributors from this week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene where they have access to lots of bonus content. We just uploaded three new episodes. Yeah. Three new bonus episodes there. So go check it out. This week we had Lucy, Hannah, Amanda, Devin, Carly, Gigi, Kirby, Audrey, Mary, Denise, Brenna, B, Caitlin, Patrick, Ali, and Andrea. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.